Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm joining you for a special podcast live from the Munich Security Conference in Munich, Germany. And to help me make sense of what's happened on the first day or the second day, if you count all of the side events here in Munich, I have Ellie garen Meyer, who's a senior policy fellow from our Middle East and North Africa program, and Ulrike Franke, who is a policy fellow currently based in our Berlin office. So, Ulrike, why don't you uh, go first? You were the first to get to Munich, I think. You've been uh, here taking part in various side events, including some that we organised with the Tagesspiegel. What have you um, found here in Munich this year? Yeah, indeed. So I've been been here in Munich for a few days and um, I would very much say you should not uh, discount the side events. Actually, I very much enjoyed the side events, in particular one on innovation with um, Ursula von der Leyen, the German Minister of Defense, um, and there was the CEO or co-founder of Palantir. So a lot has been, there has been a lot of talk about tech and AI and all of that stuff. So Palantir is this big data company that works with a lot of um, intelligence agencies. Indeed. Yes, yes, indeed. Banks and companies to... And they they talked about how to make the Bundeswehr more innovative um, and how to to make European defense more innovative. And European defense really has been the topic of this first day. Um, So we had the opening speeches by Ursula von der Leyen, the German defense minister, and um, Florence Parly, the, the French defense minister. And that in and of itself, I thought was quite interesting because last year it was, of course, uh, the German defense minister and the US defense minister that opened the conference. And this time it was the German and the French. And this is very much, I I feel, the theme of this Munich Security Conference, the kind of role of the US, where is it going, um, and the stepping up of Europe when it comes to defense, and particularly Germany and France. And just as a last sentence, I don't think anyone has been mentioned as many times so far as Emmanuel Macron. I think in the first three speeches, he was mentioned about six times. So it's the pivot, because last year it was all about Jim Mattis and various other people saying, don't listen to a word the president's saying. (laughs) As this year, they're not even there yet. Well, so there was one event where we had Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, who said very nice things about European defense and how he felt that a European, a united European defense force would actually not be bad, but rather good for NATO. But yeah, I mean, Mattis so far has been in the audience. He's not giving any interviews, I hear. He's doing some bilateral meetings. But um, I, I think we're going to hear some U.S. speeches tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken. Well, Joe Biden is here tonight talking about the future of the liberal order. So it's it's yeah. almost pretending like the, the Trump administration isn't there. I think John Kerry's there as well. Yes, I saw him there <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, um, so one big topic is, is the Franco-German partnership. And there was a lot of talk about all the different acronyms that we've become so proficient at. <laughs> like PESCO. PESCO was mentioned many, many times, um, either as a great example of what's to come or... Well, as something that that could amount to something, but may amount to nothing. I mean, there's there's very much. And Fonda Line called for PESCO in foreign policy as well as a PESCO in defence. 
That I thought was very interesting indeed. So in the in her first opening speech, Ursula von der Leyen said something about that Europe needs a PESCO for foreign policy, um, which surprised me a bit. Mean? Exactly. And she didn't say <laughs> because my immediate reaction so was PESCO for people who are less expert than Rika, as well as being uh, an impotent gorilla in some <laughs> provincial zoo in Germany. <laughs> Is um, stands for permanent structured cooperation, which is the idea of small groups, pi a pioneer group stepping forward and moving European defence forward. But because the EU is so scared of splitting at the moment, there were 25 members in this small pioneer group when it was launched and um, relatively easy criteria to meet to join the PESCO on defence. But now they want to do it for foreign policy. Well, I don't know whether they want to do it. Um, Ursula von der Leyen said she would be in favour of that. But I was immediately thinking, I thought that the EU was that was was a PESCO for foreign policy. I mean, I'm not I, I can't really imagine projects in foreign policy as well as I can imagine projects in defence policy. So I I thought that, you know, it's, it's one of those things that sound interesting and you're going to have newspaper articles about this. I don't think that that's the most interesting message of this conference. And, and then the other big thing, I want to come on to the substance rather than just talking about structures, which we'll do with Ellie quite soon. But but maybe um, while we're talking about von der Leyen and, and Florence Barley, Florence Barley's speech was quite punchy. She was talking about how... Um, Europe is a necessity, not a luxury, but we mm. turned it into this bureaucratic thing. We now need to kind of take it back and give it life. And she was talking about European defence in quite different terms, much less about PESCO, more about the European Intervention Initiative, which she said this is going to be independent of the EU and independent of NATO. Did she say anything that you were surprised at? Were they bridging the gaps between France and Germany? I yes, I think they were. I mean, they were very nice to each other, and they clearly they clearly like working with each other. And France Parly had this whole thing about uh, France and Germany not being the same but very complementary. And I think that's right, and that's probably um, the way to go. So um, I I liked her speech. It's not. I mean, neither of these speeches were groundbreaking. I personally, I thought that. Sorry to go to the symbolism again rather than the substance, but I think that that actually may have been more important, that both of these women spoke, um, that they spoke so highly of European defense. By the way, that they did this in three European languages, both of them kind of switched between um, uh, English and French and some German, as did the people that asked the questions. So all of that was rather nice, but in terms of substance, it's, it's not groundbreaking. And it was interesting that they were also there in that role because there was no chancellor, no president which was a symbol of the German political crisis in the background. Maybe, yeah, it would have, it would have been nice to have Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel, but I think, I think the two did, did rather well. So um, if that's the, the love-in of the conference, there's, quite, there's a sort of anti-love-in brewing when it comes to the, the Middle East. We saw the Emir of Qatar speaking today, but there's some other quite prominent Middle Eastern speakers that are being expected in the next couple of days. Ellie, that's the main thing I think that you've been looking at. Yeah, so that's coming up on, on Sunday, the final day, and it looks like they're, they are kind of leaving some of the more explosive, toxic discussions to the final day to maybe keep conference goers uh, coming. Um, but no, they're go there's going to be a separate discussion um, with Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, who is going through quite a lot of um, domestic problems, to put it mildly at the moment, uh, and his own position um, as Prime Minister is being severely um, 
placed under question at least by by domestic uh, well, public the police opinion. have said they should be indicted for corruption yes i was trying to be <laughs> diplomatic in my uh, <laughs> in my approach on this um and then there's going to be uh, you know and and also uh, prime minister netanyahu who has said he's going to come to munich with uh, a defense of Israeli security, particularly given events of last weekend in Syria, where um, um, Israel was essentially, to many people's opinion, redrawing the red lines in terms of how far it was willing to allow Iranian presence and footprint um, to grow on, on its borders. And they, they, you know, what made the headlines really this time was that an Israeli fighter jet was shot down in the process. And, uh, you know, it, it's a reflection that the stakes are rising in this region. And then Wolfgang Ischinger is going to actually later in the afternoon have a session with Iran's foreign minister, Javad Zarif, and then separately, uh, right afterwards, have a discussion with uh, the Saudi Arabian foreign minister, um, Al-Jaber. And what we can expect probably from both is very different descriptions and narratives about the future security of the region. Um, I think in terms of uh, Foreign Minister Zarif's, he'll probably be um, going off a, you know, using a, um, an opinion piece that he published recently in the Financial Times as a springboard uh, for advocating this idea for a new security network in the in the Persian Gulf region. Um, and calling on, on Europe perhaps to take greater leadership in trying to push and encourage all regional actors towards a, a, a security architecture in the region. So is this the latest version of the OSCE for the Middle East? Well, when Foreign Minister Zarif was here last year, he basically pitched um, you know, an idea similar to that, which is let's, let's take a UN Security Council resolution that came into effect after the end of the Iran-Iraq war, and build on that to expand some sort of a security pact in the region. Now, this year, I imagine, based on, on some of his writings, it's about, you know, coming up with an architecture where regional actors, such as Iran, Saudi Arabia, but also, for example, Turkey, essentially accommodate one another's interests in the region and discuss one another's legitimate security um, concerns. Um, and there will be a call, I think, on, on Europe uh, and external powers to try and create a platform for that discussion to seriously and meaningfully happen. And now, how much of this is like a real demand for something as opposed to virtue signaling so you can appear more reasonable than the other players in the region? I mean, I think certainly part of that is a strategy to, you know, look like the responsible uh, or reasonable, responsible, sorry, the wrong word, the reasonable actor in this. Um, but I think, you know, discussing a lot with European officials, um, there, there has certainly never been a shortfall of Iran wanting to talk with its regional partners and regional neighbours. Uh, but I think what the Europeans are looking for and probably what someone like the Saudi foreign minister is is pressing for is a sign of good faith to first come from Iran on the regional issues to to instigate confidence building. Now, what we're likely to hear from Foreign Minister Jaber is a continuation of uh, a speech he delivered at Davos, uh, which was to really say that Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia are polar opposite forces in the region and that essentially one is good versus evil, um, which, you know, again, question mark about who's going to come out from that looking like the reasonable actor. Um, but certainly there's there's also going to be discussions about 
um, the, the, the region in the Gulf as well with, um, with um, the Lebanese def defense minister um, and the head of the Arab League. So Sunday is going to be a lot of focus on, on the Middle East, which is, as we all know, a, a, a region close to home for Europe, which is very much um, plagued with conflict and crisis at the moment. And, you know, I, I know very little about the Middle East, but I listened to the Emir uh, of Qatar uh, earlier and he said something that, that I love, which is whether you like Brexit or not, it is a good example of peaceful conflict, conflict resolution. And I just thought that that was a very uh, Middle Eastern view of Brexit. And it kind of, I, I it's all relative, this. right? Exactly. Relative to what they're going relative. through. is. Uh... <laughs> so the, another topic um, which is going to come up is obviously Brexit. Uh, Theresa May is going to give a big speech and she's been briefing the newspapers about her talks with Merkel beforehand. What do we expect from that? Um, I know that this is a speech that a lot of people are waiting for. Um, I think it's going to be one of the, maybe not one of the highlights, but certainly one of the speeches is going to attract most of attention here in Munich. Um, from what we hear, I mean, I think she's, she, she's going to come tomorrow to lay out her vision of Brexit, which is still something we're waiting for, weirdly, after such a long time. Um, I haven't really heard anything about the, the concrete content, um, but yeah, I think, I think from, from what I hear, a lot of people are, are very interested in that. But she's, she's calling specifically for a security partnership with the rest of the European Union. Yeah, I mean, we, we hear this a lot. A lot of people are worried that uh, Brexit is going to impact uh, European security and pretty much everyone who knows about this says both parties, Britain and the EU, have an interest in collaborating very closely when it comes to security and defence and particularly when it comes to intelligence. I mean, I've heard this several times today, but the question is still how are you going to achieve that? I mean, I haven't really seen any major progress on that. Yeah, well, there's some big sets of issues around data protection, around sanctions and European decision making, around technology cooperation, around uh, how you can work together on different missions. Um, and um, we're doing some work on that at ECFR, so maybe uh, we'll do a separate podcast on that. But there's another really big theme which is kind of hanging in uh, the background and is also quite visible in terms of the participants this year, and that's technology. Mm -hmm. um, so you see large delegations from Microsoft, from Google, from Facebook. And you see robots. I met Sophia the robot. Tell us about Sophia. I don't know whether you know <laughs> Sophia the robot. Sophia the robot is a rather um, creepy robot, I have to say. Um, somewhat autonomous, somewhat uh, pre-programmed, automated. We don't really know. Um, she is, so first of all, she's a she, which is weird in and of itself. And also so you she find got, that creepy? Well, no, not, not the fact that she is a woman, although slightly. But um, what is also really weird about her is that she actually got a citizenship in Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia gave... Oh, that's gave, the robot. That is the robot. Oh, she, that was when Mohammed bin Salman was opening the new... Ah, indeed. The new so that's a perfect center. link between our two topics. So earlier. she a Sunni robot. <laughs> I, I, I don't really know. So she actually um, opened... Maybe Jawad Zarif is going to can bring along um, his own robot. You know, <laughs> I, I so. don't think they're quite there yet on their AI. Yeah. So she, she <laughs> actually opened the side event on artificial intelligence and conflict yesterday. Um, so she, she did the whole welcoming thing. And she also welcomed uh, Mary Wareham, who works for the campaign to get Ben Killer robots. And she actually told her... Don't worry, I don't, 
I don't want to hurt anyone. I'm not a killer robot. And all of that, I mean, to me, it was it was rather creepy seeing this, this robot say this. But yeah, it's quite exciting. Well, I also went um, in one of the side discussions about the impact of technology on democracy. And that had um, Eric Schmidt, who's uh, part of Alphabet, so in the Google family. And there were a lot of interesting questions being posed to him and also um, General Secretary Kofi Annan. Um, about um, the impact of technology on a lot of um, countries undergoing, um, you know, social push for change, upheaval, uh, you know, Middle East clearly falls a lot into that, but also a lot of questions being posed at, you know, Google in the in the era of fake news and whether Google mm-hmm. is pro-government regulation in terms of some sort of an in- international system for regulating uh, information online or whether they are uh, more opting for governments working on transparency and their measures. I mean, obviously he, from Google's point of view, was very much opting for the latter in terms of letting companies come up with these packs themselves. But I thought that was a very interesting They event. had a little straw poll of the room, which showed They did? The oh, you were in the was, same... The room was not with, um, with Google on that. No? The room oh. wanted regulation. What was the room though. mainly made up of Europeans, could you tell? or There were quite a lot of Americans in there as well, hmm. actually. I think that we're beyond the stage where people trust these monopolistic yeah. com- companies the size of countries <laughs> to necessarily um, regulate themselves flawlessly. Actually, a question that I, I wanted to pose, but I didn't quite make it in that session, was um, Kofi Annan talked about how a lot of these social media platforms and um, you know uh, information channels like Telegram or WhatsApp are being used both by... Uh, the general public to disperse information, but also being used as a tool of social control by a lot of governments. Um, and, and, you know, uh, it was interesting, that idea of using technology as a form of control or punishment, mm-hmm. um, because it made me think, again, I'm sorry to go back to Iran, but there's been quite a lot of discussions at the moment about how certain technology companies have been sanctioned from uh, from sending their technology into Iran, so including Google, um, including apps on Apple um, that were formerly available and because of new sanctions regulations are no longer accessible to the general mm. public. And so after recent protests in Iran, there's been a lot of discussions about whether that's legitimate US foreign policy to sanction technology in that way. Um, so that's another area of debate that I wanted to have. Yeah, well, I was in Silicon Valley a few months ago talking to people who are working on the next wave of big data. And they were saying that data is increasingly not about words and numbers. But, for example, one example they used was that if you look at people's photos, you can tell with a reasonable degree of accuracy whether people are gay or straight Mm. because um, hormones... And I don't know what. Apparently, like with really large numbers of things, just tiny alterations can can allow you to predict with quite a high level of accuracy. So he was saying, what happens when the religious police mm. in certain countries, which we've mentioned already, get hold of um, of this uh, of this data and are able to act on it? But it's also a question of. Um uh, um, cultural bias as well in these technologies. So one of the things mm-hmm. that came up in, in, in the discussions that were just had was about how um, uh, you know face recognition is being used for profiling um, potential criminals. But, but it's it only including... works for white males really well, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so there's a lot of um, you know false positives there. And one of the points that um, the, the the Google rep was making was that in in you know critical issues to do with liberties and life and death 
AI shouldn't be the final decision maker on it. Mm-hmm. I mean that that's a huge a huge debate when it comes to uh, to military to killer use of robots. AI. Exactly, yeah, killer robots. I mean, again, that 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 was that was part of the debate yesterday, and and and, and that's something that we still need to come to grips with. So we're coming to up towards the dinners. I got to go and have dinner with the French defence minister to find out more about PESCO. And I think the two of you probably have uh, maybe even more exciting plans for the evening. Um, I see whether Sophia, (laughs) Sophia the robot has time for me. Um, And we also have a a side event tomorrow looking at at how Europe and Africa can work together um, in the Sahel region, looking at some of the links between migration, development and, and security issues. Um, so why don't we maybe leave it there and we can come back after the weekend and see whether there are any major surprises on the agenda that we failed to anticipate. Yes, I'm, I'm going to watch uh, Theresa May's speech and let's see whether in- something interesting comes out of this. And Ellie mentioned a lot of interesting stuff that's happening in her area of expertise. Yeah, well, Ellie, it sounds like the, after Sunday's discussions, we might very well want to, to have a separate discussion. Sure, sure. We'll see what kind of heated rhetoric gets exchanged. Okay. So we have one last thing to do as we go off to our respective dinners, which is the bookshelf segment. Ulrika, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? So I actually have been reading the MSC uh, report. I am a big fan of the MSC report because what they do really well is put interesting data together and put interesting graphs together. And um, uh, as you could tell from our debate, one of the big issues, of course, was European defense. And they put a lot of interesting graphs together as in, you know, where's where's the defense spending? Um, what are the capabilities? What should be done? What needs to be done? Um, and I, I, I've been enjoying that. I think the report is called uh, To the Brink and Back. So very much about the international order and whether we are at the brink or coming back. Ellie, have you had a chance to read anything recently, or have you been too busy going from side I'm, event I'm afraid, to side event? I'm afraid I'm gonna I'm gonna do do a workbook. You know, I normally like to do novels and nothing related to the Middle East, but I did read a very interesting article by Jim Walsh, who's um, senior researcher at MIT, uh, on the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists last week, which is about essentially why there is a lot of misleading information and facts out there about um, the the cooperation between North Korea and Iran on nuclear uh, weapons program. Um, And it's a really interesting study that debunks a lot of um, information being put out on media in the US and and partly actually in the Middle East, um, connecting the two countries. And it actually goes through the logical reasonings why this would not be in the benefit of Iran or North Korea to have this kind of a collaboration. Okay, and I'm going to have a double recommendation. Firstly, I would recommend the, the twin speeches by von der Leyen and, and France Bali because I think they're, they're quite interesting um, together. And secondly, um, I would recommend a book I've been reading, which is a lot of fun, um, about this tech uh, topic by Franklin Four. It's called World Without Mind. Franklin Four was very briefly... Um, the editor of the New Republic, as it was bought up by uh, um, the a former Facebook founder, um, and uh, they tried to turn it into a kind of um, modern tech uh, platform. Um, and anyway, it all ended somewhat disastrously with most of the staff leaving. And um, uh, 
this book was written partly in anger, but actually it's a very analytical book about how technology is destroying the world. And there are particular sections about uh, Facebook, about Google, about some of the other platforms and the model of surveillance capitalism which they're developing and the destructive nature of their competition for our, our attention. So, uh, so that brings this podcast to an end. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please uh, let your friends and colleagues and acquaintances know about it by writing about it on your Facebook page or ours or tweeting about it. And above all, by racing towards the platform that you downloaded us from and leaving us a rating or review. Particularly helpful, you could do that on the iTunes page because that seems to drive quite a lot of traffic our way. But for now, from Ellie Garenmeyer, Ulrike Franke, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The editor of our podcast is Katarina Botel Atzinaro. Our researcher is Jonathan Hakenbrosch. And our producer is Wiebke Evering. Mm-hmm.